to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to send our greetings now to uh, those that are streaming at home with us. Uh, Lee Ferris and Shirley Minton and Cheryl Romai and uh, others that are streaming with us. We want you to know that uh, we're grateful that you're, you're streaming with us and participating in our assembly that way. And uh, we want you to, at your home, uh, with all of us here in this auditorium, as we all bow our heads, pray together that God bless us as we study His Word. Let's pray. Father, we've already been reminded with some pretty profoundly emotional words of how vulnerable you have made yourself to us. And it is our prayer in the name of your son Jesus who made himself vulnerable to us that we ask you to make us vulnerable to you and to your word in these next few moments as we press our mind into what your Holy Spirit has imparted to us through the pens of human beings. We ask for eyes to see it. We ask for ears to hear it in such a way that we are changed. And this we ask in Jesus' name and all the church said. I want to begin uh, with a quote from one of the greatest uh, church historians from uh, probably the last 200 years, a fellow by the name of Kenneth Scott Lauderette, uh died in 1968 and has written one of the, the really most comprehensive uh, church history, uh, set of volumes of church history that's ever been put together. And there's a pretty famous quote that reads this way. More than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiances of the masses. They appealed to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered, yet also developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity was for both sexes. 
while its rivals were primarily more for men. And the church welcomed both rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. The question must be raised, why this unprecedented comprehensiveness, or in other words, this never-before-seen inclusiveness? Why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear to the world first in Christianity? End of quote. Well, let's, let's step out of uh, that quote for just a minute, and let's ask a question about ourselves. When someone asks the typical church member, and it doesn't really have to be us, it could be anybody that goes to church on a regular basis or identifies with the church. When someone asks the typical church member about where do they go to church, how do they usually answer? Sometimes the answer is a personality. I can remember uh, not, not too long ago, there, uh, Ben Bailey and I were at the radio station where he works, and we do our, our radio spots, record them. And I'd been there that morning, and a couple of his co-workers came walking up, one which didn't know me, and when they walked up, they introduced themselves, and I introduced myself to, to them, and the one who knew me said, oh, he's the preacher for where Ben Bailey goes to church. Sometimes we describe a preacher, sometimes we describe some other kind of a personality. Or another thing that we do is we give, we give the name that's on the front of the building that kind of identifies it geographically within a, a city or a metropolitan area, right? We give a zip code or we give, we give an address or we point to a building. Sometimes we identify with a denomination. What we should describe is what happens to us because we're part of that church. What we should describe is what happens to us. What was just read by Josh in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, is part of the chain reaction that takes place after Peter preaches the very first sermon in the post-resurrection world. And when they hear that message, there's just something powerful about that message, the words, that, the truths that are spoken. There's something powerful about the fact that the Spirit in, uh, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 has fallen upon the apostles and these people are cut to the heart. What they heard cut all the way down to the core, cut them to the quick. And they repent and they are baptized, which is a lot of stuff that we don't have time to talk about right now. But basically when they repent and they are baptized, what they are doing is now aligning their, their lives with the will of God. They are receiving the forgiveness of their sin. They are receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens in the, in the blink of an eye is 120 disciples in Acts chapter 1, by the time you get to the middle of Acts chapter 2, become 3,120 disciples. And then you get over into Acts chapter 4, and it's growing and growing and growing, and now they can only count the men, and it's about 5,000 men, which means that there's probably over 10,000 people that are in that church in Jerusalem. And then you go to the next chapter and it says more than ever. More than 3,000 in one day, more than growing to 5,000. That's what the Bible says. More than ever, disciples are being added to the church. And then in Acts chapter 8, it breaks out of Jerusalem, goes into Judea and Samaria, the second part of that of that, that, that three-part plan that Jesus gives to the disciples, the apostles in Acts chapter 1, Jerusalem, 
Second part, Judea and Samaria. Third part, to the ends of the earth. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, they are going into literally the entire world and taking the gospel to the hearts of people. Now the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, how did this explosive, unstoppable, never-before-seen inclusiveness and transformation of such diverse people happen? I would suggest that Acts chapter 2, verse 42 has the clue. That verse says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. One uh, great commentator on the book of Acts, a fellow by the name of John R.W. Stott, no longer with us these days. But John Stott says, in that verse, you have the church being described at least three different ways. It is a learning church. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They are a loving church in the sense that they have devoted themselves to fellowship, to koinonia. And they're a worshiping church that they have devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I would say he's absolutely right on all of that, but I would just add one thing that he doesn't really talk about, and that's the word devoted. What does it mean to be devoted to those things? Yeah, this last week, having a conversation with a good friend, and in the middle of the conversation, he tells about something that happened the week before at a restaurant here in town. He and a buddy are having lunch together or dinner together, and they make conversation with the, uh, with the waitress at this place. In the course of the conversation, they discover that the waitress is not having a very good week. And part of the reason for that is that she had uh, a pet that she had had for a really long time. And the pet had gotten sick and had gotten feeble, and finally the pet had to be put down. And she had decided in her devotion to that animal that as that animal was cremated, she would take some of the ashes of that animal, mix it with ink, and have the face of that animal tattooed onto her arm. It's devotion. It's devotion. Devotion goes much deeper, though. Biblically speaking, devoted means that it's not that you just love something, but that you dedicate yourself to something, that you you're giving something away in, in a very deep and serious way. Think of Deuteronomy and think of Joshua in the Old Testament, those books. When something was dedicated to God, it meant that it was devoted to Him, it was given to Him in the most sincere, deep, profound, and spiritual sense. That's what's happening in the first church. In the early days of this church, these newly minted disciples of Jesus are devoting themselves. That is, they are giving themselves and dedicating themselves. They are giving themselves devoutly and profoundly and deeply and seriously and literally to God's Word and to God's people and to God Himself through worship. Now, what I, you know, we're going to talk about all of these themes at some point when we're going through Acts. I want to focus on that middle one. I want to address fellowship this morning. When, when people believe the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, they reorder their lives along the pattern of the Christ. They begin to become that certain kind of people that we talked about in Acts chapter 1 last week. They, they're not just different, but they are attractively different. 
That is why, in part, that the Christian faith erupted in the world as it did. Part of the power of the gospel is that the things that used to divide us, the things that used to separate us and form walls between us, have now become like nothing. They have all been removed. And one of the words that describes that, that 3,120 that soon became 5,000 men and probably became bigger and more gigantic than that as time and space allowed, one of the words that describe them in this text is the word together. Look at verse 44. All the believers were together. Verse 46, and they continued to meet together. Verse 46 at the end, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. Do you know what happens? And again, when we, when we think about anything one-dimensionally, it gets us into trouble. When we think one-dimensionally about the gospel, we lose some of the greatness of the blessing and transformational power of the gospel in our lives. If to you the gospel is just the fact that you have been forgiven, glorify God for that, but recognize that that's just one thing the gospel does. In the early church, the gospel drove people together drove them together in such a way that it caught everybody's attention. This group, this 3,120 people in Acts chapter 2 that Josh read to us, a description of these people are not homogenous except in the way that the gospel had transformed them. In Acts chapter 2, these people who are together and together and together they are literally from everywhere, and they are literally Jews and Gentiles. Look at how he describes it in verse 9. If you got it there in your Bible, there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, parenthetical statement, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Gentiles, Cretans, and Arabs. And what Luke is trying to help us to understand here with all of this description is that together doesn't just describe what the church did and does today. It describes what the church is. The church, the people of God, together. In spite of their differences, together. And the world, quite frankly, had never, ever, ever seen anything like that. Remember the quote from Skinneth Scott Lauderette. People had never seen before this kind of inclusiveness. But here's the thing about fellowship. One of the things that have happened, has happened even in my own life over the years is that fellowship begins to mean certain kinds of things. You have dinner at house every night, but what is it you have when you eat together at church? It's a fellowship dinner. And growing up in my own life, the word fellowship meant fried chicken and mashed potatoes and potato salad and potatoes and gravy and boiled potatoes and rice, banana pudding and bread and rolls and biscuits and something with broccoli and jello. It meant food. Or it means friendship means friendship. But fellowship is more than friendship, although you can certainly have friends as a part of your friendship. And it's more than eating, although eating together is certainly a part of fellowship. The word koinonia 
which is the word we translate as fellowship, refers to a common life. A life together. Doing life together. Doing the common life together. And that's what the early disciples devoted themselves to. It's actively giving yourself to other people and receiving from other people in that common life. It's serving other people and being served. It's knowing other people and being known fully. It's celebrating what's happening in other people's life, the celebration of grace where they, they, they make it through some, some besetting sin that is, is torturing them in life and they make that break, breakthrough. You celebrate it and it's being celebrated yourself. It's accepting other people and being accepted. It's loving people and being loved. It's sharing with people and it's being shared. It's helping people carry their cross and having people that help you carry the cross. If I was to give you, and I will, a definition of fellowship, it looked like something up on the screen. Fellowship is the one-of-a-kind relationship. We'll go ahead and put it up on the screen. There it is. <laughs> Somehow we're not synced up. I'm going by this down here. Fellowship is the one-of-a-kind relationship forged through consistent interaction for the purpose of building and protecting spiritual growth in a community of disciples. It is doing life together for support and encouragement, accountability, and the celebration of grace. Fellowship is not optional. Fellowship is not secondary to your life as a disciple. Now, I could give you a lot of benefits of, of, that fellowship brings into your life as a disciple. Let me give you three very quickly. Fellowship helps maintain God at the center of your life. Fellowship helps maintain God at the center of your life. Do you ever go for a while, and I, I'm going to confess, as a, even as a minister, there are times when I go and I don't think about God. And sometimes even forget about God. But all of us identify with that. I mean, do you ever feel overwhelmed by a problem and forget that God is sovereign over the, all, all the universe because all you're looking at is the problem? You feel confusion as to what you should do, how you should make a decision because of all of the conflicting advice that you get from all over the world. You feel discouraged and thoughts of God are pushed to the periphery. Or you become so deeply enmeshed in a sinful, destructive life or you're on the path to it and you don't know it. Or there's something going on with your kiddo that you love so much and that you worry about. And you have... No one, you have no one to share that burden with. Uh, some years ago, before we went to Brazil as missionaries, we were living in La Mesa, California. And uh, I was working with the kids and, uh, at that point, and we decided we wanted to do something really special on, on Wednesday nights. So we had this thing called bodybuilders where we combined both the parents and the kiddos together away from the building at somebody's house. And it was, it was about fellowship parents and kids together. And we had a young man in that group, and we had been in this bodybuilders program for about a year or so, when on a Monday we received word, I got a phone call late in the afternoon, early evening, that one of the kiddos in the youth group, it was a 10th grader at the time, he had had his best friend over to the house after school. Uh, his sister had come to pick him up. He watched his best friend get into the car of his best friend's sister, they drive off, he waves away, last time he saw him, three blocks down the road, his best friend is killed in a car wreck, 10th grader. 
We got the phone call and kind of scrapped everything that we were going to do that following Wednesday night at Bodybuilders. And we just got together. There were about 80 of us that were inside of this house, and we just talked about what it meant to grieve and what happens when a person dies. And then towards the end, and I, I mean, it, it, you know, it wasn't real profound, but we put this, this kiddo at a place where everybody could see him, and we just allowed him to talk about his friend. We allowed him to talk about his nickname and how he had gotten this nickname and some of the escapades he and his, his friend had gotten into. And as I was at kind of doing this interview with this kiddo, you could just kind of see the eyes begin to moisten and you see the light reflected in the tears. And at the end of that time, there was kind of a coming together and uh, supporting and nurturing in love, that kid that was grieving. And he received phone calls and he received notes and cards for a period of time afterwards. And the funny thing was about all of this, he really didn't have a lot of friends in the youth group. He was kind of a loner. But here's the thing. He didn't really need friends because he had fellowship. It's good to have people in your life to remind you that God is present and has your best interests at heart, even when it's difficult. Secondly, fellowship means that you're never alone in this life. Life is not complicated, really. It's not all that complicated, but it's never, ever easy. And God never meant for you to go through life alone. What is the only thing that God says is not good in all of creation? Man's what? Loneliness. He is alone. It's the man's loneliness. You know why it's not a good thing? Loneliness can be extremely debilitating. It is an extremely debilitating experience, especially when you're in a painful spot. No one knows you're sick. No one knows you're in the hospital and nobody comes to visit. There's a terrible thing that's happened in your life, a tragedy that just rocks your world and no one knows. And the converse is true too. Something really great happens in your life and you have no one to share it with. Fellowship doesn't mean an easy, trouble-free life. It means having companions in suffering. It means having spiritual brothers and sisters in your life that remind you that you are a part of a family of God and that you're never alone in the universe. It means getting the emotional and physical and spiritual support to face trouble. It's fulfilling what Paul says to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And then the last thing is this. Fellowship contributes to spiritual growth. Think about all of the one another passages in the Bible. Love one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Forgive each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another. Pray for each other. Confess your sins one to another. Do you know what that is? That's those Meno-Parthians having fellowship with the Medes. It's the Egyptians and those Henri Elamites sharing the table and breaking bread together. It's the Cyrenians and the Cretans, for goodness sake, coming together and loving each other in the gospel. And when that happens, do you know what that is? 
That's when the wolf lives with the lamb and the leopard with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling. That unbelievable harmony that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 11 becomes this very visible, tangible vision in the church. Those that should not go together are at peace and in harmony with one another. And one of the ways that God grows you up in His kingdom is putting you in relationships that help you grow into the likeness of Jesus who just loves the world so much. And sometimes these relationships teach you and they challenge you or they encourage you. But all the time they help the fruit of the Spirit to develop in your life. Now there's a lot of other things that we could talk about fellowship, but we're going to have Herb Smith uh, come up and to, uh, to share some words with us right now. As Mark has said, fellowship is of primary importance to the spiritual health of the church. It is essential, it is an essential ingredient in the long-term spiritual maturity of every believer. This past year, as we worked through our long-range vision for the church, we as your shepherds came to the conclusion that fellowship is an area that needs to be strengthened if we are to truly love God, love people, and change the world. We believe it is important to encourage a stronger fellowship than we currently have to help offset the growing worldliness that surrounds us all. After much consideration, prayer, and discussion, we have decided the best way to accomplish this goal is to encourage each and every member of our church family to participate in weekly small groups. More information about these small groups will be available in a handout at the conclusion of services and information posted on our website, an app, and in weeks to come. We as shepherds recognize that we all live in a busy and hectic world with lots of demands. In evaluating the best method for creating small groups, the timing and frequency of such meetings is a key consideration. In looking at the various services that already exist within the congregation, it became evident that Sunday evening is a time period and is a prime candidate for being reshaped to facilitate the small group meetings we recognize that for the majority of our church, the best opportunity to meet in a small group is on Sunday night. With this in mind, the shepherds are endeavoring to reshape the Sunday evening assemblies to encourage these small groups. We plan to continue our traditional Sunday evening service through March the 12th, and then transition into the small group format beginning March the 19th. This is intended to be a focused effort to grow in our fellowship, our faith, and our outreach. Our plan is to have one of the small groups meet here at the building on Sunday evenings. This will be a small group meeting similar to the functioning of the other small groups. 
However, it will provide an avenue for those who only meet on a Sunday evening to do so. Further, we also recognize Sunday night may not be the only time for a small group to meet in a given week. The focus and the goals of the small groups are to meet together weekly and to grow in fellowship with one another. Your shepherds ask that you pray for this process and encourage your participation in it. We believe these changes will help us to love God, to love people, and change the world. Also, we encourage your feedback, your questions and comments to the elders and ministry staff. Thank you. Thank you, Herb. I think that one of the great things about a church that makes a difference in the world is the difference that they make in each other's lives. The first century church was, was reestablishing the integrity of God that had been taken away in Genesis chapter 3 by people. And it was done in the way that they not only exhibited the fruit of the Spirit, the way that they imitated Christ, but it was also in the way that they related to each other. Ellen and I had been in Brazil six months, still learning the language, still trying to figure out how the language worked, when we were called into a meeting uh, with some members in a, in a town nearby. And on the way out there, it was revealed to us and to the other young couple that uh, it was, we were joining in the work by the veteran couple, the one veteran couple, is that our church, because of all of its diversity between black and white and rich and poor and academically uh, trained and those that were not and, and all, zip codes, all of that kind of stuff, that we were walking into a meeting where people were going to tell us that, uh, that they were going to start another church in another place. We had the meeting, and one of the things that we talked about was the greatness of when different people come together and are united and are in one body together. And so we started uh, what we called community groups or fellowship groups. And within a year, all of the talk of that, uh, the, the issues that were separating people, it now became as if it was nothing. And that church of 40 people very quickly grew to a church just under 200 in attendance. And within a year, we had more baptisms and conversions than in the history of that church. There is a heavy blessing that falls on anybody of God's people anywhere in the world when they choose to be serious about fellowship and the blessings that fellowship brings. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that as your fellowshipping brothers and sisters, we can minister to you through prayer, through whatever it might be, our, our spiritual leaders, the shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And if there's any way that we can minister to you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. 